Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Jay Garfield, author of Buddhist Ethics, A Philosophical Exploration, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press as part of their Buddhist Philosophy for Philosophers series. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Jay. Thanks very much for having me, Malcolm. It's a real joy to be here. Well, great. I'm glad to talk to you, too. Uh, so let's dive in. Your book is an introduction to Buddhist ethics written specifically for philosophers. And we'll get into the details of the philosophy in a minute, but like also what kind of introduction it is, how we should understand Buddhist ethics, and so on. Uh, but let's start with the big picture about the book. What is the book's main goal, and why did you think it was an important book to write? Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I published a book with Oxford called Engaging Buddhism, Why It Matters to Philosophy. And Oxford decided that it would be a really cool thing to follow that book up with a series of books on specific topics in philosophy for philosophers. One on metaphysics, one on epistemology, one on ethics, and so forth. And so this is the ethics volume in that series. And um, I thought it was just really important to have one on ethics, because even though there are a number of good introductions to Buddhist ethics, um, I didn't feel like there was one that did exactly what I wanted to do, um, which was to approach Buddhist ethics on its own terms in the context of Buddhist philosophy more generally. Um, so I thought it'd be a good idea to actually contribute to this series, and I did. Okay. We'll talk about why your approach is different than some existing approaches in a little bit. But first, let's back up to and ask a question I usually ask us, um, how did you come to be interested in the book's topic? And for you, I mean, you've been working on Buddhism for a long time. So maybe let me ask a more narrow question. How did you get interested in Buddhist ethics specifically? Uh, I mean, a lot of people are looking at like metaphysics or epistemology. What drew you to ethics? That's a really good question. Um, Because I first came to Buddhist philosophy interested in questions in metaphysics and epistemology. And a lot of my work was in that area. But um, one of my teachers in Buddhist philosophy, uh, the Venerable Geshe Eshitapka, is always fond of emphasizing whenever he teaches that whatever the apparent topic is in Buddhist text, the real topic is really ethics. And that Buddhism really is first and foremost about transformation and the kind of transformation that it's about is ethical transformation. And the longer I reflected on Geshe Eshitapka's teaching and Um, the longer I kind of started diving into Buddhist ethical texts, especially Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara, um, How to Lead an Awakened Life, but also Chandrakirti's Majamaka Avatara, Introduction to the Middle Way, and indeed some texts of Nagarjuna, like Ratnavali and so forth, um, it became clear to me that there was a lot in that, and that to try to understand Buddhism without centering ethics was kind of missing the point. Um... And of course, the longer I spent with these ethical texts, the more I was impressed with their sanity, their profundity, and the fact that they represented a really distinctive voice um, in ethical theory. So I really 
started making that turn when a group of us called the Cowherds decided to follow up a book on epistemology with a book on ethics. And um, we began to look pretty hard at the way that we can understand ethics in the context of Buddhist metaphysics. Because some people have charged that in a in a philosophical system that denies the reality of the self, that argues that all existent phenomena are merely conventional, that nothing exists ultimately, that it's hard to make sense of value and ethical cultivation. And of course, that had to be wrong. Um, so that's where I went. Okay, great. So we'll talk about those charges as well, because you definitely take those take those up in, in the book itself. Um, the book itself is three parts, essentially, two large parts and one um, final part. And about, I'd say, 13 chapters, um, 12 with a coda. So instead of going chapter by chapter, because that might take us too long, I will move through the book and look at some of the main ideas you're putting forward, focusing in particular on any arguments you think would be especially controversial or interesting for for our audience of, of philosophers. So in the, in the first section of the book, you um, in, it's called Structure, you lay out your argument that Buddhist ethics is a kind of moral phenomenology. And um, this is what you think is distinctive, and you argue for this throughout the book. Um, what starting assumptions do Buddhists make that our listeners need to know in order to appreciate this main idea that Buddhist ethics is a kind of moral phenomenology? And which Buddhists are we talking about? There's a lot of Buddhists out there. Yeah, there are a lot of Buddhists out there. <clears throat> that makes it hard to say something that's both true and informative about the entire Buddhist tradition. Um, in, this, in the book, I've tried pretty hard to um, cast a broad net. So I do talk about both uh, Theravada and Mahayana sources. I talk about texts written in Pali, written in Sanskrit, written in Tibetan, written in Chinese. And I try to get a fair range, as well as contemporary texts written in English, because we should remember the Buddhist tradition isn't of historical interest. It's a living tradition that continues today. So I've tried to um, be as representative as I can and to abstract ideas that are broadly common um, to the Buddhist tradition, but then also to focus on some ideas that are specific to particular sub-traditions within that. It's kind of important to recognize that there are some things that virtually anybody in a Buddhist tradition takes for granted. Um, things like the Four Noble Truths, um, things like selflessness, um, things like the um, impermanence and interdependence of all phenomena. Those are common currency. Now, there are then doctrinal disputes about how to understand each of those. And just as there's nothing that all Westerners have in common, there's very little that all Buddhists have in common. Um, but there's enough that we can tell, uh, tell a story. And as I emphasize at the beginning of the text, um, a lot of this has to qualify as rational reconstruction. That is, one thing about Buddhist ethical literature is that while there's quite a lot of it, there's not any really meta-ethical literature. And so to construct a kind of meta-ethical story, we have to tell a story that makes sense of a lot of the ground-level um, normative and descriptive work that goes on in Buddhist ethical texts. And so I try to do that. And one of the things that um, I kind of like about the book is that a lot of it is pretty tightly textually grounded, um, talking about what particular Buddhist philosophers say, in particular, Buddhaghosa, Nagarjuna, 
Shantideva, um, Aryadeva, to some extent, play big roles in this text because they're the most systematic ethical thinkers that we find in the Buddhist tradition. But there's other voices in there as well. Uh, Chandrakirti, of course, plays a, a nice role in there, and there's even some Dogen. So there's a little bit for everybody. So real high level, we'll get back to this in more detail, but what are the Four Noble Truths, and what is this idea of selflessness, just to make sure we have our bases covered? Okay, that's a good idea, because those structure this. And as you said, I begin with this um, general section on structure, really trying to explain what the overall uh, framework is within within which Buddhist ethics is prosecuted before getting to doctrinal issues. Um, so the Four Noble Truths constitute the foundation of all of Buddhist philosophy. Um, and of course, calling them noble truths is already a bit of a misnomer. It's, it's more accurate to say ennobling truths or truths for one who might want to be noble. It's not the truths themselves that are noble, but presumably it's us if we take them seriously. And they're enunciated by the Buddha in what's taken to be the very first um, public talk that he gave after attaining awakening um, at Sarnath, called the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, or the Discourse Turning the Wheel of uh, Doctrine. And the first of those is that all of existence is pervaded by suffering. And that's the truth that sets the agenda for all of Buddhist philosophy, all of Buddhist ethics, all of Buddhist practice. The idea that the world that we live in is fundamentally unsatisfactory and a world um, in which we're pretty constantly in, um, in states of distress. And as I say in the book and elsewhere, if you don't take that seriously, then Buddhism doesn't have anything for you. Um, if you don't find existence fundamentally unsatisfactory, well, of course, one thing is that Buddhists will explain to you why it is even if you don't believe that it is. And I do discuss that in the book, right? Why even if you think that um, existence is fundamentally okay, that you find yourself as um, a, a great Buddhist uh, simile puts it, um, licking honey from a razor blade. Um, that underneath even pleasure is, is a lot of dissatisfaction. The second noble truth is that this suffering has a cause, and that that cause is triune. Um, the immediate proximal causes of suffering on this view are attraction to things we can't have, and aversion to things that we're forced to have. So attraction and aversion are the proximal causes. And those are grounded in what I translate as primal confusion. That is a very deep, innate um, misunderstanding of the nature of reality, um, taking impermanent things to be permanent, unsatisfactory things to be satisfactory, taking um, persons to be selves, and so forth. Um, the third noble truth is that since there's a cause, if you're able to eradicate that cause, to eliminate the attraction and the aversion by eliminating the primal confusion, of course, that's why philosophy is so important in Buddhism, um, then you can eliminate suffering. And the fourth truth is the Eightfold Path, which sets out the domains of concern and the domains of cultivation um, within which one should operate in order to eliminate the causes of suffering. So those set the, the agenda uh, for Buddhist ethics. And if we think about what Buddhist ethics is doing, as you pointed out, I characterize it as a kind of moral phenomenology because that the most fundamental 
root of the suffering that characterizes existence is primal confusion. And that is a misseeing or a misperception of the world, um, a kind of a, um, deluded experience, if you want. Buddhist ethics is often about restructuring our experience so that we come to see the world aright and to see it in a way that reduces attraction and aversion, and hence not only reduces our own suffering, but enables us to be the agents of the reduction of the suffering of others. Great. Thank you. That's that's a great overview. And we'll, as we move along, come back to those four ennobling truths as you've, you've laid them out in, uh, in some more details, we get into some of the specifics. Um, but let's, let's talk about this, as you say, reconstruction of Buddhist ethics as a kind of moral phenomenology. Because as you say, this is, it's not like there's a text which makes this claim in, in so many words. Um, and there are some approaches out there to reconstructions of Buddhist ethical commitments in broadly Western terms like consequentialism and virtue ethics and so on. So in your book, you argue that yours is a, is a better approach. What's the evidence textually, philosophically, that you think taking Buddhist ethics as a kind of moral phenomenology is, a, is more apt than some of the other approaches? Yeah, good question. The, um, let me just begin with just a broad methodological comment um, about that. And it's true that many really good scholars of Buddhist ethics have argued either for consequentialist readings or for Aratheic re readings. There's even a recent reading um, as deontological. Um, and so um, there are people who take it that kind of the task of understanding Buddhist ethics is to figure out which kind of Western ethics it's trying to be and inevitably failing in some way. Um, and I think that if you just think about it from a methodological perspective, you can see that that's probably the wrong way um, to understand the tradition. Um, Buddhist ethicists did not begin in Greece. They didn't begin with a conception of human flourishing and virtue that allows us to develop an Aratheic ethics. They certainly don't have the um, basically a Christian foundation that allows us to look for ethics as a set of commandments or deontology or something that pure reason as a substitute for God drops into our minds. So the idea that it would be deontological is strange. Um, since Buddhist ethicists really um, stress in many, many places that we shouldn't think of pleasure as happiness. We shouldn't think of pain as suffering, but go a bit deeper there. It gets harder to formulate consequentialist views, and you get a kind of um, agent relativity in Buddhist ethics that makes consequentialism um, implausible, and I talk about that a good deal in the book in particular, um, with respect to the role of vows and the distinction between, for instance, lay and, and, and monastic life. So I think there's just a whole lot of prima facie reasons to think that that's the wrong, the wrong methodology. But in a more positive vein, in a more positive vein, um, when you read texts like Buddha Gosa's Path of Purification, Visuddhimagga, or you read um, Shantideva's great text, Bodhicari Avatara, um, yeah, you're struck repeatedly um, by statements um, that the aim of practice is the transformation of experience or the transformation of perception. And 
you are struck by the fact, or I'm at least struck by the fact, that um, ethical practice is so tightly understood in terms of that second noble truth and the idea that the root of samsara is a mistaken kind of experience. And then when you start looking at the um, specific ethical um, constructs that play central roles in Buddhist ethics, and here I have in mind particularly the four divine states, or Brahma-viharas, and those are friendliness, um, care, the ability to rejoice in in the welfare of others, and equanimity. Each of these is a way of experiencing the world. And when you put them together, they constitute a way of experiencing the world in a decentered way, a way that doesn't put us at the center of our own moral universe in the way that we reflexively think of ourselves. And so what you see is a kind of thoroughgoing focus on a transformation of our experience. Um, to be sure, there are a lot of discussions in Buddhist ethics um, about actions. There are a lot of discussions about the kinds of ends and consequences for which one might strive. But if you were to try to um, map Buddhist ethics onto Western meta-ethical categories, you'd have to end up saying it's a weird melange of accounts of duties, accounts of Um, consequentialist reasoning, accounts of character formation, accounts of perception. And you'd kind of want to say, are these people really so dumb that they can't put anything together in a coherent, unified way? And that would tell you that you're really picking the, the, the whole ball of string up in the wrong place. And that really what unifies all of the discussions of ethical thought in Buddhism is a transformation of experience. Because after all, the kind of paths that Buddhism characterizes in its various adumbrations of paths of practice are paths to awakening. Um, And that central model, I mean, what Buddha means is the guy who woke up. Um, And if we're heading for Bodhi, for awakening, that's a transformation from being asleep to being awake, from not being aware to being aware. And that's a transformation um, of experience. The other way to see this is to see how central the idea of upaya or skillfulness is in Buddhist ethical thought. And the way that upaya gets glossed shows us that Buddhist ethics is not giving us an account of a virtuous life. It's giving us an account of a virtuoso life, a life in which we act spontaneously um, and openly. Um, in a way that's salutary for ourselves and others. And of course, that requires the cultivation of the kind of expert perception and perception action cycles that constitute a way of phenomenological um, mode of engagement with the world, what Heidegger would call a mode of comportment towards the world. Well, thanks for that. That's very helpful in unpacking why we would consider Buddhist ethics as a kind of moral phenomenology. And your book offers textual evidence, as you've noted, as well as philosophical argumentation for this. I don't think we have the time to dig into all the all the textual details, but they're they're in there. I think one question that kind of uh, emerged in what you were just saying to follow up is people who don't know much about Buddhism might have been thinking as you were speaking, oh, this is where mindfulness meditation comes in. 
Uh, and this is something that you sort of briefly talk about in the book and kind of set aside a little bit. Do you want to do you want to say something here about what Western listeners should and shouldn't be understanding at that juncture? Yeah, um, this gets complicated quick. Um, it is true that on the Eightfold Path, um, meditative a perfection of meditative absorption or practice of meditation is really important. And when we look at the um, the adumbration of the bodhisattva path, for instance, one of the perfections we're looking at um, is a perfection of meditative um, stabilization, absorption. And we're also looking at a perfection of something that gets often called mindfulness. Um, But we have to be really careful here. Um, The word mindfulness is an English term. It's not a term in any canonical Buddhist language. So it's trying to translate Um, some Sanskrit or some Tibetan or whatever, but typically some Sanskrit. And the two Sanskrit terms, as you know, that it's translating in different places are smarti or samprajanya. Um, And smarti is a term that's got a kind of different semantic range than the English term mindfulness. Its primary meaning is memory or recollection or calling to mind. So that when people in the contemporary mindfulness industry talk to us about maintaining focus on the present moment and not worrying about the past or the future, that ain't what smarty means, right? Smarty means remembering your vows, remembering your commitments, remembering what's important, remembering what your goals are. It's not, it's not about focusing on the present moment. The other term is samprajanya, which means something like introspective vigilance, the ability to hold something firmly in mind um, once you've got it. So it's the the absence of wandering, if you want. And um, you might say that mindfulness is translating the combination of these two or something like that. But even then you get it wrong. Because in the Buddhist context, each of these has a determinate ethical valence. Um, When we talk about cultivating smrti and samprajanya, it's not like, remembering your laundry list or your grocery list. It's not about maintaining focus on the itch in your toe. Um, The things that we're calling to mind are specifically ethical, have specifically ethical content, have specifically metaphysical content. And we're calling to mind what we know about ourselves, what we know about others, what we know about what conduces to suffering and what conduces to happiness and what we've resolved to do. And we're holding those things in mind. So if we're talking about mindful sex or mindful snipers in the military, none of that has any connection whatsoever to what these terms mean in a Buddhist context. So I, because the word, the English term mindfulness, excuse me, has been so hijacked by um, the mindfulness industry. Um, and I don't have, you know, big objections to that. I, if we want to use techniques that are derived from or loosely inspired by um, Buddhist texts and practices to relieve stress, to control pain, to make people happier, all to the good. And if Buddhism and its techniques can contribute to that, that's way cool. But when I'm writing about ethics, I don't want to be using terms that have got those resonances. So I prefer to focus on sticking to the either the original Sanskrit or to my own terms uh, to mean something like 
calling to mind or introspective vigilance um, that are a little bit more specific and a little bit more faithful um, to what's going on in those texts. Great. Thanks. That's helpful. So one of the, the challenges then seems to be you've got this idea of moral phenomenology where what you need to do is transform uh, your way of seeing, of experiencing, understanding the world. Um, but it seems like Buddhist ethics is in this metaphysical context uh, of what we might characterize as determinism. Uh, there is there is no free will, someone might say. Uh, and if there's no free will, and we are all, as you've uh, alluded to, interdependently connected, this idea of uh, Pratitya Samutpada, uh, how can we be responsible morally for um, our actions or our attitudes or, or even our seeings? This is a challenge for, for Buddhists, correct? It is, and it's a fundamentally important idea. And if you, if you start out with a lot of very familiar and maybe even instinctive ideas about what action, agency, and responsibility look like, then things look really problematic. But what I'd like to do is to kind of suggest that those might not be the best ways to think about who we are and how we act. So let me just talk that through from a Buddhist point of view um, with a few comparisons to the Western point of view. So let's begin by noticing something that I think people find it really easy to forget, that the idea of a free will that we've come to take for granted, not only in ethics, but also in religion and in law um, and in politics um, in America and elsewhere in the world is um, not something we stumbled on. Um, it's the artifact of a particular theological conundrum that arises in a Christian tradition. Um, it comes to us from Augustine's attempt to solve the problem of theodicy. Notice that when people study psychology, we don't learn about you know, perception and action and memory, and also the will. Um, the will doesn't turn up in psychology texts. We don't look into the brain and find the part where the will is. Um, the will was invented as a general faculty of action by Augustine. And then we also had to exempt it from causality. And again, when you go to the psych department and ask which part of the brain is exempted from natural causality, they look at you like you're out of your mind, and they're right to um, so I just want to say that the idea of free will, um, the idea of a will, and the idea of something that's transcendentally free, don't make as much sense as they might appear to just because those have become common ways of talking. Now, Buddhism is an atheistic um, religious tradition and philosophical tradition, and so it never developed the problem of theodicy. And for that reason, nobody ever had to invent a general faculty of action or figure out which part of us was exempt from the causal order. Buddhists are fundamentally naturalists, and they think that all events happen because of causes and have, um, and have effects. And that includes events in the what we would call the external world and events in our own minds. Perception is caused. Intentions are caused. Um, beliefs are caused, and so forth. And there's nothing at all surprising about that. And to me, actually, that makes perfect sense. I've never encountered anybody who I looked at and said, damn, that person's exempt from the causal order, let alone myself. And of course, we wouldn't really want to be if we thought about it. 
because you really want your actions to be caused by your intentions. And you really want your intentions to be caused by your beliefs and desires and values and so on and so forth. You don't want magical thought insertion. You don't want somebody flipping coins in your brain. Um, and that requires determinism. I'm not the first person to say this, of course. Hume noted this and argues for it very powerfully. Schopenhauer argued for this very beautifully in his essay on the freedom of the will. Dan Dennett wrote a great book about this. I mean, and they're all in the same vein, right? So there's a, a good line of, set of good common sense in the West that, re that rejects that too. And so what that means is we have to make sense of moral responsibility and agency in the context of thoroughgoing determinism. And that's not just a challenge for a, for a Buddhist. As I say, that's a challenge for anybody who doesn't think magically or theologically about, about their actions. Um, so, what do we mean by that? Um, if everything that I do, or let's put it more bluntly, since everything I do um, has antecedent causes, when we ask ourselves, what are the things for which I'm responsible um, or morally responsible? And again, moral responsibility is not a major category in, in Buddhist thought. That's the other thing to say. There's a lot of interest, interesting categories, but moral responsibility, I want to set aside. Having moral consequences, having moral valence, that's a different thing. Um, but if we want to understand actions that are mine, the simple answer is they're the ones that are caused by my intentions whatever else causes those intentions, um, as opposed to the ones that are caused by somebody, others, somebody else's intentions, say when I'm pushed as opposed to when I jump, um, or caused by phenomena that aren't intentional at all. If we ask, gee, are my intentions um, caused? We might say, yeah, they're caused by other actions of mine that I endorse. And we can think about the degree to which we endorse and identify with and see as part of our own narratives, or that others see as part of our narratives, um, the causes of our behavior, and see that the more they cohere as part of the narrative of a personal life, the more we think of those as morally relevant to our actions. Um, a way to put this is that when we're interpreting events as actions, and interpreting events as motives, and interpreting events as desires, we're effectively engaged in a hermeneutical enterprise. We're interpreting and constructing a kind of narrative unity in a life. And when we assign moral valence to an intention or to an action, we're saying that that, that's, that action is central to the intentional part of a person's life and not peripheral. And I think that's a saner way of looking at this, to think that... Um, in interpretation of, of ourselves and others is always a fundamentally hermeneutical act. The way that Buddhists put this is to say that one of the dimensions of dependent origination is dependence on conceptual imputation. And what that means is that events don't, hold, don't wear their intentional character on their sleeves. Um, they are interpreted. Just as we interpret bits of metal or paper as currency, we interpret movements or psychological states as contentful. And when we do that, and we interpret them as intentions that are part of our own history, we take those to be parts of our moral lives. So I think you're, you're also here 
um, alluding to a distinction that becomes important in Buddhism between um, what is fundamentally real and what is maybe conventionally real, or also, and also what is um, ultimately true and ultimately or unconventionally true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a, a bit of a maybe if you can unpack this for us in the face of a potential worry, it sounds like one way to understand what you're saying is there's there's this sort of fiction that we engage in, which is ascribing sort of morality and narrative structure and uh, aims to these things that we call people, but there is really, there's no self fundamentally. Uh, and and in fact, our fictions are just as much caused as, as anything else. So this whole thing we call Buddhism, well, that's just a sort of causal consequence of other conditions that we were not in charge of. Yeah, um, Mark Sideritz and I have each in different places referred to the Buddhist outlook as a kind of pan-fictionalism. And um, it's worth reminding ourselves, this is kind of fun, that in English, the words fiction and fact are cognate. They come from the same root, fingere. And a fiction isn't just something that we make, it's make up, it's something that we make. Um, facts are things made in factories Um, and um, a fiction is something that we made they really are very very similar Um, and Buddhism as you say is grounded in this idea of the two truths a conventional truth and an ultimate truth but of course the trick is that we then discover in especially the Mahayana tradition that these two truths are effectively identical because the ultimate truth about things is their emptiness. And that means not their non-existence. Fictions are real things. Um, Not their non-existence, but rather their lack of any intrinsic reality, the fact that they depend for their reality, they depend for their identity, they depend for um, their, their value on their parts, on holes, on causes and conditions, on mental imputation. And it's the emptiness of any intrinsic identity um, that constitutes their conventional reality. So one way to put that is to say that things are empty in the Buddhist sense is to say that they're dependently originated. But to say that something is dependently originated is to say that it's part of the causal and conceptual order. And that's to say that it's real. So the conventional world isn't a conventional reality is not a second-class kind of reality. It's the only kind of reality there is. And the ultimate truth, then, is simply that the only truth that there is is conventional truth. Um, And so if we think of ourselves as ultimately real, as selves, as causally independent, then we end up with this vision, kind of like the one that Wittgenstein sketches in the end of the Tractatus, that the self stands to the world as the eye stands to the visual field. Um, It's the subject, it's the agent, it's the witness, if you want, but it stands outside of the world and is made manifest only by the existence of the world. Now, if you honestly think that you stand outside of the world, and therefore, of course, outside of causation and all of that, way cool. I find that to be a hard, hard vision of human life to swallow. And 
the Buddhist intuition is that we are parts of the world, that we are constantly changing causal continua in open interaction with other causal processes in the world. And that's all we are, that we're empty of any self. That doesn't mean that we don't exist. It means we're as real as any other spatio-temporal causal process, but no realer than any of those processes. And in none of those processes do we find a central, substantial, independent core. Um, and so the whole picture rests on that complicated, interdependent notion of agency. It, what's what makes it possible for us to experience the world. It's what makes it possible for us to transform ourselves. It's what makes it possible for us to transform others and to be transformed by others. But none of that requires the idea of a self or a substantial existence. Gotcha. So some of the themes that you were just speaking about, the idea of this, the fictions and narratives also connects to the material in the book that you're working with, which sometimes is a bit maybe unusual for what philosophers think of as philosophical works, uh, at least many philosophers. So chapter five, you focus on narrative. Chapter seven, you explore the importance of the path metaphor in Buddhist ethics. So I think you've hinted at this a little bit, but let's make it the focus. Why do you think Buddhist philosophers chose these approaches, narrative and metaphor, to communicate their ideas about ethics? Uh, and then help us with what that helps us in terms of yeah. what their ethical commitments are. Good. Um, narrative is, in fact, the medium through, through which most of Buddhist ethical discourse is conducted. Not all of it. There are ethical treatises like some of the ones I've mentioned. But if we look at the corpus of the Vinaya, the monastic discipline code, it's almost entirely narrative and it's almost entirely ethical. Um, and then there's a lot of paracanonical Buddhist work, including Jataka stories and so forth, that are explicitly narrative um, <clears throat> and that are developing um, moral ideas. Now, there's a bunch of reasons for this, and they're interlocking. One reason is that Buddhist ethics is fundamentally particularist, which is not surprising since Buddhists are nominalists about universals and since we don't have this kind of overarching moral theory here, but rather simply a kind of vision of transformation. Um, and because they're particularists, the view is that moral judgment begins by considering individual particular situations learning how to see them and to respond to them, and then learning how to generalize from there. But learning that any generalization is defeasible and that particular cases almost always constitute counterexamples to universal rules. So, for instance, um, if we look in um, Vinaya, we get these wonderful um, sequences of narratives where you'll get a narrative. Well, let me take an example that, that I use in the book. Um, one, a, a story that's told about, you know, how it's really not a good idea to ordain little kids and the trouble that you get into when you ordain little kids. And at the end of that, the Buddha says, so here's a rule. You don't ordain anybody under the age of 15. That is immediately followed, immediately followed in this literature by another story that talks about 
a bunch of little kids who, if they don't get ordained, they're going to end up being orphaned or trafficked or something like that. And they get ordained and everything works out right. And the Buddha says, yes, it's a really good idea to ordain kids as long as they're old enough to drive off crows, which means about three or four years old. Um, and you very often get these sequences of stories. There's a great sequences of stories about um, whether it's okay to move about during the rainy season when you're normally in retreat if you're a monk. Um, and again, you get this one story that tells you not got to stay put. Another story that said, well, if it's a really important donor and they really need something, then maybe you can go. And then another story that says, oh, by the way, if somebody needs medicine, that's a really good reason to go too. And so you get this sequence of particular events that are mapping out the moral landscape, and it's the particularism that's driving it. That's one reason. Second reason, um, stories, partly because of that, have enormous power. Um, they have power as ways of articulating moral um, ideas, but they also have power um, to transform us in a way that abstract thought can't. I mean, it, anybody who's read Iris Murdoch's novels and her philosophical treatises knows that you learn sometimes a lot more about ethics from the novels than you do from the treatises, though you learn from the treatises as well. But um, a good example of that is the story of Kisagotomi, um, and where you see the narrative playing a role in her life and in our lives. So in the Kisagotomi story, we get a woman who tragically loses um, her very young child. Um, uh, the child dies, and she's heard that the Buddha's around and he can work miracles. So she brings the, the corpse of the child to the Buddha and says, can you bring my child back to life? And he says, absolutely, easy. All I need is a mustard seed from a house, from a family in which nobody's ever died. And she says, great. And the story has her going from house to house. Has anybody ever died in this house? Yes, I'm sorry, I can't get the mustard from you. Anybody ever died in this house? Yes, yes, yes. And at the end, Kisagotomi has the realization, death is all over. Everybody has suffered the way that I do. Now, if the Buddha had just said to her, listen, lady, everybody dies and everybody suffers, get over it. Um, that would not have been a skillful way to perform moral education. But as she worked through her own narrative, she came to a realization that somebody saying, get over it, everybody dies, couldn't do. But moreover, when we read that story, um, we experience the anguish of Kisagotomi, and then we experience the gradual realization as well. And the narrative has a power for us that a bumper sticker that says everybody dies, don't mourn, um, isn't exactly going to have. Um, so narrative works partly because of the particularism, partly because of the power. And the third reason that's extremely important and that's bound up with these is that we are narrative creatures ourselves. As I said, we are just open causal processes in, uh, in open causal interaction with everything else in the world. But what makes me Jay and you Malcolm? Um, it's that I'm a character in a story that I'm working out as I go. Um, and that character is defined by the narrative arc of my life. The actions that I perform, the intentions I form, the values I have, the experiences I enjoy, um, make sense as mine only in the context of a narrative arc that makes me a lead character in the story.
something Nietzsche recognized as well, by the way. Um, that's the sense in which we are fictions, not just things that don't exist, but rather like Ahab, um, we are characters in stories, but a story that we kind of construct in a group improv exercise as we construct ourselves and construct each other. And so the story of our moral lives itself is a narrative. And what gives anything moral significance in our lives is what make, makes it what allows it to make sense in the structure of that narrative. And for that reason, when we start talking about what makes a person um, good, what makes a person generous, what makes a person patient, what we're looking at is the interpretations of their acts as they make sense in the context of, of lives. And so for that reason as well, um, Buddhism is, um, is deeply narrative in its, in its form. Some of the best of these stories, by the way, are the ones that Andy Rotman has recently translated that are the narratives about praetas, about hungry ghosts, um, that show us in this very powerful way the way in which meanness or matsarya, stinginess, um, transforms us into hideous beings and transforms those around us um, into people who are disgusted by us. Um, and those are told through a series of very evocative stories. Again, just to say, if you're stingy, people won't like you. You shrug your shoulders. But when you read the stories, they're quite gripping. Yeah, so the Hungry Ghost actually leads me to a question that I would sequentially comes later in your book, but I'll ask it now. Uh, one of the sections, um, the final section of the book, when you talk about uh, contemporary issues, you focus on the question of whether um, Buddhism is is naturalized or can be naturalized or is a, is a kind of naturalism. And so one of the things you might say is, well, there are these things called hungry ghosts and they're, they're ghosts. They're really gross critters that, that do terrible things and are in a in hell realms right and uh we also have divine beings you know maybe not a god but there are gods we've also got rebirth and karma um that does how do we have a naturalized buddhism out of this you you, you grapple with that some yeah i do um so i want to start with what i take to be the kind of central image that drives all of this and um it's an image that i use in the in the book uh, the bhava chakra, or the wheel of life that many people will be familiar with. And when you look at that, you've got these six realms of transmigration. Um, there's a human realm, there's this realm of weird superheroes, there's a realm of gods, a realm of animals, a realm of hungry ghosts, and a hell realms. And this is meant to demonstrate the different kinds of rebirths that people can have if you take rebirth very seriously. And it's all held in the jaws of death. And it's a quite a striking metaphor that indicates that it's our fear of death that's actually propelling us. Now, when you look at this image, um, you can look at it in two different ways. You can look at it cosmologically um, in this um in this way that's positing all of these wild realms that science doesn't really tell us exist and that posits, you know, rebirth, which is something that many people find problematic. Again, that's not by itself non-natural. Um, it, it's either a natural fact or not a natural fact um, that rebirth occurs. Personally, I don't place much store in that. Um, but that's only one way. Um, Buddhist texts also represent this as a, in a powerfully metaphorical way. Um, as the late Thich Nhat Hanh um, says beautifully in his work, 
Of course, rebirth is real. You're reborn every moment. Um, after all, the person talking to you now is about 50 minutes older than the person who started talking with you at the beginning of this podcast. And two beings who are different in age by 50 minutes can't be the same being. So it can't be me who started this podcast. And it's not me who's going to finish this sentence either. Um, we can think of these as sequences, right? And we have a convention for identifying these under the same name. That's part of our conventional narrative identity. Um, but if we think about rebirth that way, and then we're challenged to think about realms into which we're reborn, and we read the Bhava Chakra psychologically instead of cosmologically, that is, metaphorically. And if people say, well, how can you read this classical Buddhist thing metaphorically? I want to say, give me a break. Look at the object itself. It's a picture of a wheel in the mouth of an ugly being that's supposed to be death. It's metaphorical from the very start. And it was understood metaphorically as well as cosmologically from the very start. So there's nothing unfair about reading it metaphorically. Then what we do is we read those six realms as what I kind of call six moral sets or emotional sets or six moods towards life. So there's that that divine realm, the divine mood. That's the one when you're on vacation and you're on the beach and you're sipping the margarita, watching the sunset, and you know that everything is so wonderful in the world and it's never going to end. And that's like what the Devaloka, the divine realm is, that you just think it's absolutely fabulous. And then, of course, at the end, it comes crashing to an end and you're back in the rest of the world. And the problem is that during that time, while you were having such a good time, you were forgetting that a whole lot of bad stuff was happening to a lot of people and you weren't doing anything about it. And so now you're kind of... In this, in this problem. And that's kind of what the vacation is like. I mean, if you're on vacation with the beach sipping that margarita right now, and you're not thinking about what's happening in Somalia or Syria or Ukraine, um, you're ignoring a lot of suffering when you, tell, when you look around and say life is good. And so there's that realm. There's that realm. And there's that realm of these kind of competitive superheroes, I call them, the Asurias, who are always looking for glory and recognition. That's the realm that you're in when you're an Olympic athlete, or the realm that you're in when you just want to make sure that your next article gets noticed by people, or that you get a promotion, or you get the award as the best teacher in your college, that you just need recognition and, and reward, and you need to be better than the next next person. You've got to make sure that your, your position wins. Um, that's that realm. And we're often in that realm, just like we're often in the Devaloka. There's the animal realm. That's the realm where you kind of are reactive instead of responsive, where you snap at people, where you behave like a beast. We've all been in that realm where you're acting thoughtlessly, reactively, and in ways that harm other people, and then you feel awful later on. There is that hungry ghost realm. The hungry ghosts are these beings with gigantic bellies and tiny mouths. And whenever they approach water, they're really thirsty and it turns into pus and blood. And they approach food and it turns into shit. And the thing about the hungry ghosts is that they're completely needy all the time. Nothing they get is ever enough. And because they're so needy and can never get anything, people just see them as grotesque and shun them. We have each been there, where we're so damn needy and nothing will satisfy us. Um, and of course, capitalism tries to instill that state in us all the time. 
Um, there's the hell realm, the realm where everything is a source of pain and suffering and irritation. When you're stuck in traffic, when you've got a gigantic stack of really bad papers to grade, um, where you're sitting in an administrative meeting where deans are telling you how happy you're supposed to feel right now. Um, all of those things, those are hell realms, and you've been there too. And then finally, there's the human realm, the realm where you can be a mensch, where you're humane, where you're responsive to people, where you're sensitive enough to the suffering around you that you could do something about it, and decent enough that you want to do something about it. Sometimes we spend a few minutes each day in that realm. So one way to understand rebirth in that sense is it's the emotional rebirth that comes when we're constantly cycling between these ethical sets. And what Buddhist ethics is about is about gaining enough control that we can hold ourselves in that human realm long enough to do good and to make progress and to remove suffering and to eliminate primal confusion, attraction, and aversion. Um, now, when you look at it that way, nothing I've said is inconsistent with anything that is naturalistic. And if we turn to karma, as you also mentioned, all karma means is action. And derivatively, from, as a contraction from karma pala, it means effects of action. So it means actions and their effects. And it means that what we do has effects and that what we are is the consequence of stuff that happened before us. If you don't believe that who you are is the consequence of what happened before right now, you're out of your mind. And if you don't believe that your actions have effects with regard to who you're going to be next and what you're going to be like next, you're also out of your mind. And so again, if we simply think about karma in that very straightforward, reduced way, instead of some cosmic bank account, um, then there's nothing non-naturalistic about that construct either. So I see Buddhist ethics as providing a beautiful way of naturalizing ethics as well. Great. So we're getting close to time here, but I do have one quick last question that I want to ask you that about what you just raised. Uh, if you can, if you think you can uh, answer it at a high level, we'll see. Um, you mentioned capitalism in your your discussion just there. Uh, and, and that seems like a sort of political social issue. Um, are Buddhists concerned about that? Um, I mean, aren't they mostly concerned about individual people, monks, let's say, attaining enlightenment? Um, this is something that you also take up. And it's something that is a is a is a challenge, I guess, is a sort of a lot to unpack. But uh, where do you land on that question? Yeah, a lot of um, contemporary Buddhists identify themselves as what Thich Nhat Hanh and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Sulak Shivarak have called engaged Buddhists or engaged Buddhism. As Thich Nhat Hanh once said, if Buddhism isn't engaged, it's not Buddhism. Um, and um, after all, if you think that the project is the alleviation of suffering, and if you think that some of the causes of suffering are political and economic, and it's pretty hard not to think that, then you have to think that serious Buddhist commitment is also a commitment um, to social action. And engaged Buddhism is a big part of the contemporary Buddhist world. Um, Buddhist liberation movements, Buddhist hospice movements, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhis, Buddhist world relief movement. Um, it's all over the place now. And uh, it's really important. And people who argue 
that Buddhism should be fundamentally disengaged. Forget that those four central moral ideals in Buddhism include care for others, include friendliness towards others, include taking pleasure in the happiness and success of others, and an impartiality with respect to others. Um, and I think a lot of Buddhist analyses of social and political organizations are very astute. So when uh, Sogyal Rinpoche refers to capitalism as constantly offering a glass of salt water to a thirsty man, um, we begin to understand how capitalism becomes a root of suffering by constantly generating desire um, and desire for things that we can't have. When um, the Dalai Lama points out that um, an enormous amount of war and strife is caused by um, people regarding um, others as enemies and not friends, um, we see that my tree or friendliness could be a pretty damn good thing to cultivate. Um, and when we look at the environmental situation right now, we see again this tremendous uh, confirmation of the reality of pratichit samutpada, of dependent origination, and the need uh, for us as uh, causally active elements of that world to act for its benefit rather than for its uh, destruction. So I think Buddhism has a lot to say about contemporary engagement. And I think that engaged Buddhism is one of the exciting movements in Buddhism and um, one of the movements that reminds us that when we study Buddhism, we are not studying the history of philosophy. We're studying a contemporary philosophical movement with 2,500 years of history behind it. Any more than when we do Western ethics, we're studying the history of philosophy. But rather, again, the a contemporary moment in a philosophical movement that's gone about 2,500 years behind it. So, so in the conclusion of your, your book there, you, you cite some of these engaged Buddhist um, thinkers. And so it sounds like one of your suggestions is that in terms of our thinking about uh, Buddhist ethics, methodologically, one of the implications from your book is um, not just to be looking at texts like Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara, but also extending out to the Jatakas and these sort of narrative stories and also looking at engaged Buddhist, like modern contemporary thinkers. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely, absolutely. If you ignore what contemporary Buddhists are writing, then you're treating Buddhism as a museum piece. And it's not. It's an active voice in contemporary global culture. Great. Well, thanks Thanks so much for your time, Jay. Um, what are you working on now that this book is out in, in, uh, in print? Well, I do have another book that I'm no longer working on, but it's, out, it's going to be out in May um, called uh, Losing Ourselves, which is about the idea of no self. Um, but the books that I'm working on now, I'm working on a book on Chandrakirti, who's a 7th century Buddhist philosopher who I kind of orbit around quite a lot. I'm working with my colleague Nalini Bhushan on a project on the Indian philosopher Krishna Chandra Bhattacharya and his work. But the book that's really at the center of my intellectual life right now is a book on the sources of normativity. And it's going to be a Humean response to dominant Kantian accounts of that. So it's kind of a dialogue with Christine Korsgaard's Kantian account of the sources of normativity. And it's going to be called Nature and Norms. And it's going to be a more naturalistic account of the sources of normativity, taking Hume's ideas um, as a starting place.
right? So no no Buddhism explicitly in that book, or will oh, it find its way in there? There's going to be plenty of Buddhism in that book, <laughs> but it's going to be kind of percolating below the surface a lot, a lot more cognitive science and a lot of Hume. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, Jay, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's been just wonderful. Mm-hmm.